This episode is sponsored by Koya, plant-based energy drinks and coffee drinks and keto-friendly drinks. Um, go to drinkkoya.com and get some plant-based protein drinks while you listen to this episode. You are now listening to the best show in the universe, The Anthony Rogers Show. You probably wish that this was your show, but it's not. It's The Anthony Rogers Show. Tell all of your friends to listen to this show. Welcome back to the greatest show in the entire universe. Uh, no one else even comes close. Uh, welcome, uh, writer, uh, musician, artist, I got a million other things, uh, presidential candidate, if you look behind me, uh, Tucker Booth, how are you doing? Anthony, we meet again. Last time it was my podcast, now I'm on yours. I'm happy to be here, man. How you doing? Pretty good, man. Yeah, yours seemed uh, so much more professional than mine. I feel like you had a... Uh, yeah, you had it way more mapped out, I felt like. <laughs> yeah, mapped out for me means with a guy like you that I'm just going to feed you a bunch of trigger bait and just let everybody else go crazy listening. That's all I had to do for you. <laughs> and uh, for the listeners and people watching, depending on how you're uh, viewing this pod- or, uh, enjoying this podcast, uh, I met Tucker years ago. He used to play on Del Mar. And uh, as we got into it a little bit on your podcast, how uh, – I, I, you're like a local staple for uh, for playing music in San Luis. You're now in Renato, uh, in California now, but uh, I, I met you probably like ten years ago, and then came into touch with you uh, again on Twitter. <laughs> like, it's crazy. Well, I was spamming your DM box, no less. I love that part about this. Like, I go around like looking for followers of the people that I've been working with, or people that are connected to the St. Louis culture. And I found you uh, sending around a song I wrote recently called St. Louis, which was a gaslighting tribute to the city uh, that I grew up in partially. And uh, you hit me back and you're like, bro, did you even live here? And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, for about 18 years. And then we started communicating and you figured out that I was the street musician that sang you Wonderwall out in front of Vintage Vinyl when you were drunk 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I sing, I, I, I sing shittily next to your, your good uh, music, uh, I believe. I think I tried to sing with it, and like, uh, you were a good sport about it. Uh, you, you, you didn't Simon Cowell me at all. You, uh, you, you, just went with, you just went with it. I was too desperate for your money and affection back then. I would never do that. You know, that was when I was in full-on, you know, horror mode in the street. So, you know, but no, man, those were good times, and they seemed like a lifetime ago, 15 years ago. Duh. But um, – you know, that was St. Louis for me, man. Like, um, right out of college, I was like, what am I going to do? And the thought was really clear. It was like, go take the guitar and put it out, put the case out in front of a vintage and just start playing and see what happens. And like six years later, when I left for L.A., I played pretty much every day, like all day, every day for like six years, man. You you, you know, I was always down there. Yeah, Rain, definitely. Shine, Snow didn't matter, man. I was always out there, always. Does that make good uh, money? Like, I don't know if that's too personal. Does that make good money? Because I imagine back then people were tipping a lot more. Well, sort of. Um, you know, the answer is, you know, St. Louis, people there are kind of stingy to begin with with their money. Yeah. Um, obviously, street music and culture gets a little bit of love, especially in the Del Mar Loop at that time. That was kind of the, you know, known art center of town. So um, when people go down to like sit out and have dinner and stuff, yeah, they, they often, if they liked what they heard, they'd drop some money when they were leaving or whatever. But most street musicians that I knew 
weren't making that much money at all. I, on the other hand, it, over time, it kept getting better and better. I'd say by the time I left, I was making about 30 to 40 bucks an hour in tips. Wow. So, you know, that's not big balling, but it's, you know, it's, that's money. No, it's great you know? to make money doing what you love. I mean, even 15 bucks would have been fine if it's something you love, you know. That's how I look at it. I mean, True. Well, especially when your waiter friends are telling you how much they brought home after a night of taking all the shit they just took from the same drunk people that I was singing to outside. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're about even, you know, some nights I made more. And that's interesting because they hated their jobs and they said, you're so lucky because you get to do what you love. And I said, well, I'm lucky, but there's no guaranteed pay like there is for you. So that's the trade-off. The, you know, the freedom has a cost, which is, you know, I could go home with nothing if it doesn't work out that day. But yeah, most days I'd say, you know, bad day, maybe 10 an hour, good day, 20, 30, 40 an hour, man. That's awesome. That brings my next question out. Can I borrow some money? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, all out of, I'm all out of favors and loans, man. That's that's part of my new 2020 uh, campaign for my, uh, what is this, like fifth presidential run. I'm out of favors and loans. That's part of our new campaign slogan. Well, I really need a haircut favors. if you change your mind. I really, I really just need to get a haircut or maybe a shave or something. It's been a long time since I've seen a dollar. That's, that's actually <laughs> like why I did this podcast. I, I'm actually panhandling like right now. You need to start like a, a Patreon for yourself. <laughs> a, a Patreon so for a dollar a day. They can help you get a beard trimmer eventually. And I'll only ask guests for money. <laughs> I do, everyone else sells with their fans. I'm just, I'm just going to ask the guests. <laughs> they seem like they got more money anyway. They seem like, uh, the guests always seem like they got more going on. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I, I dig it. I dig it, man. And um, now you're, so, writing a, you're writing your first book, or have you written a book before? You're writing a book basically, though? Well, yeah. So I've been a writer for a long time, but I wouldn't say that's been my professional gig. Uh, but I have put out a bunch of stuff online. I have a blog, uh, worked for some websites and had gotten some stuff circulated that I'd written. Um, and my dream had been to write a book since I was a kid. I've always wanted to write. And as I got older, the story became more and more clear. It was about my life and a series of events throughout my life. But, you know, um, this last year when the pandemic really kicked into the next level and the world shut down like last March. Right. Um, like I was going crazy, like everybody else, dude, like I had like a legitimate, like a mental and emotional breakdown for about a month and a half. And, um, you know, partly for me, it was because as a full-time professional musician and entertainer out here, whose livelihood is based on being able to be in large groups of people, like I am the least essential worker under the new definition of essential worker, right? Like there is no less essential worker than a live musician anymore. So like that was what I was struggling with. And eventually by like month, one and a half, wife was like, you just need to go, like just go on a spirit journey. I'm not kicking you out. I'm not even mad at you. It just keeps coming to me. It's what you need. Go on a spirit journey, go wherever you want, take the car, take a bunch of supplies, and just find yourself and write that book, man. Like write that book you've been meaning to write. And bro, I drove from LA to San Francisco, stayed up with my brother-in-law in, -law in uh, Palo Alto area. His girlfriend wouldn't even let me in the house. So I'm like sleeping in the garage by his car, bro, on a cot. <laughs> <laughs> and I started writing a book in his garage, man, like sitting by his car. I started writing a book. He brought a table out for me. And uh, 
eventually drove on to Portland, Oregon, which is my original birthplace. And while I drove all the way up through Oregon, just vibing on all this scenery and just getting open and kind of getting my shit together about, you know, processing how to move forward with all this new world. Uh, I wrote about um, 25 pages on the trip. And by the time I got home, uh, I was on my way. And now it's a 500 page book, bro. And it's done. So it's taken about eight months. And it's done. That's awesome, man. Congrats. So, that's, a, that's a big fucking thing. That's a big deal, man. It's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it, it felt it felt crazy writing it. It felt crazy going through everything that I've gone through in my life. It's the book's about, and I guess I didn't tell you at all what the book's about, but I call it quick trip. And it's like a series of all of these um, different trips, most of them uh, road trips that I took in my life. Um, and uh, basically how a series of events from when I was 16 affects me all the way through my life. And uh, I keep kind of running from having to deal with it. And finally, now at 41, I'm dealing with it. And I used all these trips and, you know, uh, escapist type uh, logic to try and get away from it. But I have to finally kind of, you know, face up. So that's kind of what the book's about. I call it like an epic biographical road trip adventure. That's what it is. That's awesome. And it's really real and authentic. I think that you're able to even say that and like kind of be with that. A lot of people are kind of sheltered with like how they portray themselves. I think it's kind of an honest, kind of interesting thing. And when it blows up, I want the credit because you're on my show. So it's, it's basically, it's my, uh, if, you, if you're on the New York top teller, uh, seller list, I, I want the shout out, you know? That's why I came on your podcast, man. It's only because of your reach. Like it's not because we're coming with each other. Or anything. I just for your audience. Listeners, please just send me and Anthony money on our patreon please do i just set one up it's the covid relief fund pandemic patreon for tucker please send to it i need your help i'm gonna give to the anthony's pocket charity as well i think i'm gonna give to a charity uh well the anthony's pocket foundation if you guys could uh, if you guys could donate uh send all your money venmo's cool <laughs> you know i don't mean to laugh at people that really need help right now because i know a lot of people that are kind of really you know going through it financially but uh you know everybody can use a dollar a day even me you know please with the way you pitch that though the way you pitch that i have like a devil to angel on my shoulder i'm like like, do i make fun of him just for the comedy's sake or do i be a good person to agree with you you can go either way with that so anthony i did bring a little uh i did bring a correlative uh some correlative passages from the book if if you'd like me to uh to read a little for you if that's okay i love that no i love that that's awesome okay so first of all folks bear with me and i i mean that because uh though it's written we're still in the editing process and to answer all the follow-up questions about when's it coming out the answer is we don't know but i have a great editor lady that i'm working with that's a professional um and we're we're on it so uh the answer is in the future but in the meantime if you want to get a hold of me about other stuff you can always hit me up anthony knows where to find me you can find my you know info there but anyways without further ado um all i'm going to give you for this section is where we are and this is about 2012 and we are in the la county twin towers jail in downtown los angeles that's where this uh takes place okay and, uh, and away we go, all right? By the next morning, after being admitted into Twin Towers, I hadn't slept at all. I spent the rest of the previous night desperately trying to sleep, but the chaotic vocal noise in the holding cell was too pervasive. The inmates reacted to one another like children on a playground. 
Every time someone said something, a wave of louder voices would rise up and reply. The din was so overwhelmingly obnoxious and vulgar that it took all my spiritual strength to ignore what I could. Around eight, the guards brought in our breakfast. We were given the same disgusting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from before. I was nauseous from lack of sleep and all the nasty smells we'd been marinating in overnight. A cellmate noticed I wasn't touching my food and asked if I was hungry. Without a word, I gave it to him. He thanked me and tore into the food like it was his last meal. After breakfast, we finally moved out of the holding cell and were told we were heading to our cell blocks. We lined up again and then were marched up nine flights of stairs, the guards taunting and threatening us the entire way. At one point, we passed a cop seated at a table on one of the landings. As soon as he saw us, he jumped up and assumed a fight stance. What the fuck are you looking at? Keep fucking moving, motherfuckers. My group was deposited at the 9,000 cell block. As we were being escorted onto the floor, our new guard repeated the directive from our group, for our group of whites to never speak to or congregate with anyone that wasn't a peckerwood. We were handed off to an older white prisoner named Jay who introduced himself as our cell block leader. He gave us a tour of the floor. There were filthy open showers and bathrooms with no partitions on the stalls. Prisoners were visibly shitting in front of us. Jay informed us that there weren't any sinks, so the far left toilet was for brushing our teeth. As we passed, men could be seen squatting and leaning over the pot to spit. Jay told us to be sure to keep our slipper shoes on, even in the shower, but to be sure to take them off when we lay on our bunks. Staph bacteria being rife amongst us, it was important to not let any infect the beds. I finally reached my bunk and laid down for a few minutes to rest. My body was exhausted from being awake all night, but my mind remained racing. I sat back up and decided to head over to the payphone and try to call Charlotte. She hadn't heard a word from me since I'd left the previous morning. I walked down the open row of phones and realized they were all dead. A Southsider standing nearby told me that the cops had cut off all their phone and TV privileges after a raid the night before. The guards had ransacked the cell block and uncovered a variety of contraband, and this was our punishment. When do you think they're going to be turned back on, I sheepishly inquired. No fucking clue. Heading back to the bunk, I saw Jay and asked him about the phones. Just hang tough. They'll turn them back on soon enough. Uh, I'd slumped on my bunk and fretted over the blatant civil rights violation. I yanked the covers up and put the rock-hard pillow over my head to muffle the incessant noise. After 15 minutes, I gave up on sleep. It was impossible with all the inmate hullabaloo. Soon I began to overhear a conversation going on at the neighboring bunk. I peeked out from under the sheets and saw a middle-aged black man delivering a sermon to a group of younger blacks huddled around him. He sat on the mattress looking up at them and reading from the Bible. Clearly his audience was inspired by his loving, encouraging energy. I slowly sat up and listened to him while pretending not to. I knew I needed to hear what he was preaching but didn't want to piss off his disciples. I scanned the rest of the room and became enthralled by a group of Southsiders being led in a military-style workout routine. Their Mexican lieutenant would perform the exercises first and then his subordinates would mimic them in near perfect synchronicity. Lieutenant would punch his chest, both arms went up in the air, then squatted, kicked his legs back in a dippy position. Uno, dos, tres. Then he would jump back up and do inverse kicks of both legs up to his torso thrice. This was repeated with an added number of repetitions for at least 25 ascending reps. By the final few rounds, the Lieutenant grunted and growled in anguish. I slumped back on the bunk and started praying my ass off. Moments later, one of the black inmates from the Bible study passed me, nodded and gave a warm smile. You doing all right? 
I was taken aback by his speaking to me directly. A veritable revolving door of cops and inmates had told me to shut all blacks. I took a quick look around to make sure none of the guards were watching. Everyone was distracted. Yeah, brother, I said softly, thanks for asking. He nodded contently and kept walking. My minister neighbor had finished his sermon and noticed my exchange with his protege. Still sitting on his adjacent bunk, he turned to face me and introduced himself. Hey, young man, you must be new around here. Name is Harris, what's yours? I flinched again at the potential trouble associated with racial commingling, but Harris's eyes were full of empathy and compassion. Nice to meet you, Harris. I'm Tucker. Only in here a few days. DUI. Hoping to be out tonight. He laughed sweetly. I hear that, Tuck. I'm in here on a DUI, too. You are? Yep. Born in South Central. Fell in early with the D-Boys. By junior high, I was slinging crack in the corners and running with a gang. After my second conviction, I did a long stint in federal, and it changed my life. I got out, kicked dope, found Christ, married, three kids, house, pool, the works. Sounds like you beat the game, I mused. I had until one night 10 years later, I got drunk and rolled for a DUI. Ever since Bill Clinton mandated the three-strike policy, I knew I was on thin ice. Even with over a decade's worth of good behavior under my belt, the prosecutor threw the whole damn book at me. That doesn't seem fair. Now, I ain't saying I'm an angel after federal, but I sure as hell never dealt drugs again. Crazy. How long did they give you? Oh, I'm in county for at least a year minimum. Figure won't be much more than that if I have good behavior. Sorry to hear that, Harris. You sure don't seem like a threat to me. Thanks, Tuck. I've honestly learned to embrace being back inside here. It gives me lots of time to study the scriptures and help guide some of these young bucks toward the Lord. We sat in tense silence for a few seconds. I spoke first. So I tried when I, right when I got here to call my wife and all the phones are turned off. Yeah, I know. One of the Southsiders told me that the cell block got rolled yesterday. They found all kind of shit in here, he lamented. Porn and drugs, mostly. Doesn't it seem illegal for them to deny everyone, including new inmates like me, our constitutionally protected phone calls? Harris laughed. You and I both know the answer to that. I shook my head and shifted gears. I have to tell you, I was a little nervous when you and your buddy started up conversations with me. Why? Well, ever since I got booked and printed yesterday morning, all the cops and white inmates kept telling me to stay away from all the other races but my own. They said if I didn't, there'd be hell to pay. They did, huh? He winked. I sincerely laughed for the first time since reaching Twin Towers. Let me tell you a little bit about 9200 block, he began. All 140 of us have had a mass enlightenment, you could say. How so? We got all the different groups together and made a decision that we were truly going to treat each other with dignity and respect. The guards are the ones trying to keep us segregated and hostile towards each other. The whole floor of guys in here are in here for nonviolent offenses, so don't worry about anybody hurting you. That's a relief, I sighed. The reason they had that raid yesterday is because it made them mad seeing us getting along. That's crazy as hell. Sure is. But again, no need for you to sweat it. Phones will be back on by dinner. You'll see. I thanked Harris for his reassurances and said I was going to go try and find something to read. He pointed me to the lending library, which consisted of three hard chairs and one half-empty bookcase, a few dog-eared books, and some newspapers strewn about. I grabbed a copy of the LA Times and turned to head back to my bunk. Before I could leave the area, two ginormous Southsiders stepped directly in front of me. Both of their heads were covered with tattoos, and they had to be both six foot four inches tall. The one on the left fixed me with an icy glare and pointed a sausage finger at me. Hey, Wood, where'd you get that paper from, dog? I found it over there, and it looked like no one was reading it, I weakly blurted. He slowly shook his head. You can't read that one, dog. This one of our papers, see? He pointed to the top right corner of the newspaper. 
in black pen, someone had written South Siders paper in Childish Scrawl. Sorry, bro, I deferred. It's my first day. I handed the paper to him and cautiously offered my hand to shake, trying to show respect. The giant gangster smiled and shook it with a firm grip. No problem, he mumbled. I looked around for another copy. A grandfatherly-looking white man was sitting in one of the chairs reading what looked to be the Times. I asked him if there were any more Peckerwood copies. No, but you can totally take mine, he said. He passed it to me while offering a greeting handshake with his other hand. Sure enough, the copy had Wood's paper written in the same wobbly handwriting across the top. What are you in here for, he asked. DUI. You just get here today? Yes, sir. Well, then you'll be out by tomorrow, he emphatically affirmed. This place is too full as it is. With that, he nodded, picked up his newspaper, and went back to reading. As I returned my bunk, I thought about how badly I wanted to believe that old man. The problem was, it was almost evening time, and I was getting a sinking feeling that the massive influx of prisoners the night before was gumming up the works. My sentence was for up to 13 days in jail. When I'd gone to the court, the prosecutor told me that most nonviolent offenders only did 10% of their recommended minimum. My choice was donning but clear. Either borrow two grand I didn't have to pay my fines or go to Twin Towers for probably 1.3 days. 1.3 had come and gone. For all I knew, I could be stuck in there for a fucking week. Harris waved when I got back to the bunk. As I was sitting in to read, another black, slightly younger neighbor introduced himself. What's up, man? I'm Daryl. Another handshake. Harris here told me you went for drunk driving. We launched into a long conversation, mostly involving him asking me questions about my life. Daryl wanted to know about my family. When I told him I had a two-year-old son, he especially perked up. He's lucky to have a dad like you in his life, he said sadly. I never got to meet mine. He's dead now. Even though all the personal questions were making me more homesick, I obliged them. I could tell that Daryl was lonely. It also, again, put things into perspective. Though he didn't give me any details of his current situation, it was clear Daryl was in there for a lot longer than a week. My news of familial normalcy seemed to soothe his raw nerves. Ever been in Twin Towers before, he asked? No, I'm pretty certain this one time ought to keep me from coming back. I hope you're right. This ain't no place for nice guys like you. Yeah, but honestly, the craziest part, Daryl, is that ever since arriving yesterday, I felt more afraid of the cops than the so-called criminals. He chuckled and shook his head. They some mean motherfuckers that run this place is why. You know this cell block has filed more police brutality complaints than any other in the county? It's one of the reasons the guards pick on 9200 blocks so bad. We even had an undercover FBI agent in here last week posing to one of us. Rumor is there in some hot water after that little visit. No shit? Uh-huh. All kinds of bad stuff going on in the towers. I heard they had secret rooms with no cameras where they beat the inmates. Fuck yeah, they do. Trick is they work the kidneys, beat them with telephone books. That way the bruises are internal and don't show up on a physical. Damn. Plus, they always threaten to hit us with more bullshit charges if we don't kiss their feet. Bunch of assholes, if you ask me. I mentioned that on my way in, I've been repeatedly confronted with Sheriff Baca's core values throughout the jail. Daryl and Neves dropping Harris both laughed sarcastically. All inmates and guards will be treated with dignity and respect, with no promotion of racism, sexism, and homophobia, I paraphrased. They laughed again, this time in genuine amusement. Couldn't be further from the truth, Harris whispered. They get mad when we do show respect. That's all I'm going to read. Dude, that's great, man. That's that's a good that's a, that was a good blurb, I think. And like, that's I, I want an autographed copy of this book when it's out. <laughs> I'll buy a copy. I don't want your listeners and shit, but you know, we wrote some real shit, man. It's uh, it's not all jail. 
But I, you know, I, I, I get in and out of jail a few times. I do a stint in St. Louis jail. There's a fun scene with the rap battle in St. Louis jail. Um, you know, it's a wild ride, man, but, but it's my life. And, uh, and I, if this pandemic hadn't happened, it, I wouldn't have wrote this book. So in a real weird way, I'm kind of grateful for all this, even though I'm not grateful for COVID. 